All right, let's go ahead and open in prayer. Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. Guide and lead us to understand what you would want us to see from this. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Hebrews 11. Seems like a long time since I've been here because it's only been two weeks, I know, but it seems like me like a long time. Uh, Gary, I heard you did a really good job last week. Thank you. So. All right. Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to be on verse 17. Or excuse me, 7. Did he? That's what everybody told me. They did a good job. So, that's good. We're going to be starting at verse 7. I think I said 17, but we're actually starting at verse 7. Now, the thing about this whole chapter is called the... Um, faith chapter it's all about heroes of the faith and one of the things that I talked about two weeks ago just to bring this back up is this really shows us that faith in God will have earthly cost because every one of these people that are being talked about in this one paid something for their faith Uh, some with their very life some with just miserable times and it's something I've been thinking about a lot is when we follow God, he's going to turn our world upside down. And we will have to pay for following God. And now the flip side of that is because he's in us, it, it, there's joy and there's peace and all the other parts that go along with it. There's the knowledge that he will make all things work together for good as he did with each one of these characters. Something good came out of it all. But in the process, everything was turned upside down and you know, kind of shaken up and <laughs> tossed around a little bit. So thus far we talked about Abel who was killed because of his sacrifice that, was, that his brother was jealous. We talked about Enoch who was uh, translated or raptured into heaven. And that's as far as we got so far on this chapter. So starting at verse 7. Chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house by which he condemned the world and became heir of, of the righteousness which is by faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out of the place that he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing where he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed, and was delivered of child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised." Therefore sprang there even of one of him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the sea shore innumerable. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. For they that said such things declare plainly that they seek a country. 
And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might, not, they might have had the opportunity to, to have returned. But now they desire a better country which is in heaven, whereby God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. We'll stop there. <laughs> God is not ashamed. <laughs> well, we will touch that as we get there, <laughs> but it is an interesting point. So it says, the first one they talks about, by faith, Noah, being warned of things not seen as yet, moved with fear. And I just want to talk, talk about this to start with. Noah moved by things not seen. What did God tell him? It was going to rain. So much rain that it was going to flood the earth. Now, if you read carefully in Genesis, before that it said a mist comes up out of the ground and waters the ground. And most people believe that this statement is that there had never even been rain up to this point in time. There had been a mist that came up and, and the, the area was... So Noah was told some very interesting things. Noah, I'm going to drop rain, uh, water from the sky... <laughs> And this world is going to be flooded. Well, what's that be? well, that's just it. What is, what is this rain coming out of the sky? And then what's a flood? And so he's been, you, know, you want to talk about walking by faith. You know, he's going to tell everybody, oh, by the way, it's going to rain. Well, what's rain? Water's going to fall from the sky. Never having happened, you could just imagine how people are looking at him. Huh? Uh, You've really gone crazy, Noah. We knew you were crazy because you kind of obeyed this God and, and you've been following his rules, but now we really know you're crazy because you're talking about water falling from the sky that's never happened before. And you're talking about a flood. What's a flood? It's going to be water everywhere and flood everything. And people just looked at him as if he was insane. And he got to build this boat for 120 years, <laughs> telling everybody that rain was going to fall down and flood the world for 120 years. Telling everybody that what's never happened is going to happen as he's building this big boat in his backyard or his field, whatever. <laughs> and everybody's looking at him, and this boat became a symbol of this crazy man <laughs> building this boat. <laughs> for something that's never happened and they're looking at him as if he had gone in, insane. And it says he was moved by fear, prepared the ark for the saving of his house. Now the one thing we know about the ark, it was big enough for two of every kind of animal. Not two of every animal, but two of every kind. All right, And this is something when people go, well the ark is not big enough to, to put two of every type of animal. Well, you only needed two dogs. All right. You didn't need dash hounds and, and, and uh, Dalmatians and, you know, all these. You just needed two dogs, most likely two wolves, because the wolves are the, what we believe were the original dog of all the dogs. All right. So he just needed two. He didn't need two of every, of the hundreds of types of dogs that have been developed over the years. Uh, he only needed two of the horse kind. He didn't need zebras and all these other things because they're all of the same kind. 
He, did not, he only needed two elephants. He didn't need Indian elephants and African elephants and woolly mammoths and all these other things. He just needed two elephants. So when you figure he had more than enough room and people have predicted that if people had wanted to get on the ark, there was plenty of room for people as well. All right. Uh, now, nobody responded to his message. He preached and preached and preached for 120 years while he built this ark. And we're told this in, the, in, in, in Hebrews. And nobody listened. Nobody responded. And all he had was the eight people that got on the ark. Now, God knew that that's how many would be on it, but I believe that he had plenty of room for more people. And, you know, and it says, he also, by being obedient, condemned the world. This is something that is very important for us to understand. Our obedience to God brings the condemnation to other people because they start understanding that they are not being obedient. And we've talked about this many times, just our presence, bringing God into the, into the presence of somebody and the obedience that we have to God makes them feel uncomfortable. I've seen this happen more than once in my, in my walk with God. I, I just, I won't do something that makes other people very uncomfortable. Then they usually lash out at you. Well, you think you're better than us, or you think this, you think that. No, I'm just obeying God. If that bothers you, that's not my problem. All right. Uh, if you're being bothered by my obedience to God, that's not my problem. That's your problem. All right. I'm not, I'm not having a problem with your disobedience. That's between you and God as well. And so we want to just understand that he, by building this boat, preaching to them for the time, basically sealed their condemnation when they failed to receive. And remember when God, it said that God closed the door to the ark when the rain started falling. And I kind of understand why God closed the door. Because if Noah had done it and people are pounding on that door, wanting in now that the rain is falling, you know, that compassion, it had to have been very heartbreaking to him to hear people pounding on the edges of the ark and, and screaming out for, for, you know, hey, we believe you now. The rain, this, this rain stuff you talked about is falling from the sky. We believe you now. And it was too late. Just like at the white throne judgment, when people are standing before God at the white throne judgment, they're all going to want to be going to heaven. Because all of a sudden it's like, oh, this stuff that those crazy Christians talked about is real. Uh, God, we, we repent, we forget, we, we, we want to accept. And he says, no, it's too late. There comes that point in time where it is too late to make a change, to change your mind. We are a light to the world. We're filled with Jesus and our obedience shines a light on their sin and draws a reaction. Now from those who are wanting to repent, then that light draws them to the light for them to receive. For those who are not receptive, it drives them away from the light. You know, I'm thinking like moths are drawn to the light, usually to their destruction, but that's, that's, so I don't really want to go there. Uh, rats and, and various insects are driven away by light. So we bring light into, a, into the life and people's lives, and it will either draw them to it or repel them from it. 
And we see both, you know, when you bring it into people's lives, you see both you know, from, from them. And so this is Noah, and he says, he became the heir of the righteousness which is by faith. So here he's pushing the idea, righteousness comes by faith. Our faith in God is what gives us righteousness, and it's his righteousness. It's not our righteousness. And note, it is the righteousness which is by faith. Not the stuff that he worked for, but the, what he got from God. And this is what we're told over and over in the scriptures. We are to be clothed in Christ. We will be, be clothed in righteousness. And our own righteousness is not going to be good enough. Isaiah tells us that our righteousness is filthy rags. So we are filled by the righteousness, clothed in that righteousness, which is by faith. Then he switches over to Abraham. By faith, Abraham, which... When he was called to go out to the place that he should after, hereafter receive an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing where he went. So let's look at the story of, of Abraham. Abraham was in the Ur of the Chaldees, which was a center of all of what was going on, right there just outside of Babylon. He's just a generation or two outside of Nimrod's reign of terror and and, and Nimrod is the foundation of all of the false religions out there. Uh, when he was having the Tower of Babel built, it was, the purpose of it was twofold according to history. It was to make human sacrifices and to reach up to the, the gods. The Babylonians had a pantheon of 36 gods, and so he had the first big religion against God. All right. There have been people before that out against God, but Nimrod really laid the foundation, and all false religion falls back to Nimrod in the, in the Tower of Babel. Abraham is called out of that area. Now, the other character that's in that area that we don't really think about so much unless you really know the history of that time is Eber. E Eber. Eber is the last of the really long-lived Patriarchs, right after the flood, uh, two generations after, I believe it was. Uh, no, he was. He was. Uh, you had Noah, Shem, Aphex, Eber. So he's three generations out from Noah, and he is the last of the really long-lived patriarchs. His life goes so far that he outlives Joseph in the Bible. Joseph, who is the ruler of, uh, of Egypt. He has a very long life. He lives, he's born before Abraham, and he lives long past Abraham, past Isaac, past Jacob, and past Joseph. He's a really long-lived patriarch. Born before Abraham and lives to be well past Joseph. All right. Uh, his lifespan was 600. Yeah. Yeah, he, he's going to. No, Moses, he doesn't live long enough to meet Moses. <laughs> uh, but he does live, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's, he has, he's one of the last one. He's six or 700 years. He's, he lives, and he is 
righteous. He follows God. Eber is also the founder of the Hebrew nations. All right? All Jews are Hebrews because they're related to Eber, but not all uh, Hebrews are Jews. All right? So in, in their day and age, a Hebrew was anybody who believed in one God and was the follower of the monotheistic God that Eber taught and, and lifted up. So we have this process of Eber and Nimrod were opponents in their day. Um, so you had Nimrod bringing false religion, Eber following the one true God, and God let Eber's life go for a long time in the, in the post-flood post era. Um, so we see this process going on and Abraham is called out of that battle area going on between Eber and Nimrod and the false religions being developed and God says Abraham leave your home now this is a pretty big saying back in those days you did not leave home I mean, it wasn't so long ago, even in America, you didn't really leave home unless you were an adventurer. Uh, you pretty much stayed, stayed near your family and the family farm and the family ranch and, and family stayed together. About 150 years ago, we, you pretty much stayed where you are unless you were that adventurous soul that just had to get out and, and do anything. Abraham was told, leave your family and go where I'm telling you to. Now, if you know the story of Abraham, Abraham left the Ur of Chaldees with partial obedience to God. He took his father and he took Lot to go with him. And when he gets to Haran, he stops. And he stays in Haran for a couple decades before his father dies and he finally decides to be obedient to God and continue his walk. All right. So we have this process. He was partially obedient when he left the Ur of Chaldees, and then he was being obedient when he finally left, well, almost obedient. He took Lot with him. He still took Lot with him. Uh, and Lot caused him lots of problems and caused him his descendants' problems because out of Lot comes two nations that are against Israel for their entire existence because Lot's girls who get pregnant from him when they runs away from Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction end up having two nations that are going to be trouble for Israel. Um, Lot was the his nephew whose father had passed away so Abraham considered him his personal responsibility to take care of. Uh, and, you know, this is the problem how many times, and that's a good point, is how many times do we make excuses to be disobedient to what God says through our own thinking? All right? And that's why Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 are for trust, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean on unto your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Too often we trust in our own ways as we're trying to obey God. And this happens over and over. We will make good excuses and we'll come up with all the good reasons why we're doing what we're doing and, and why it's the only way we can do it and all these other things. 
instead of just saying, God said, I've got to obey. All right. Um, you know, and this is true of all these individuals. They do, they're obedient to God. And for, for Abraham, I mean, he gets, we, everything gets dropped. They, they don't look at his disobedient part, but they just talk about how obedient it was. And this is the good news for us as well. When we're finally fully obedient to God, I kind of, you know, glosses over all the disobedient time that we are. Uh, and it's fun to read the biographies of different Christians and everything and watch how they grew to where they, to where they got to be well known. And, and most of them will talk about those years of disobedience, those years of learning, those years of not doing things right. Of course he knew it. He, yeah, he knew, he knew that we were not going to do it. I would not use the term overlooked. His, he has mercy and grace on us for those disobedient times. Uh, we still suffer the consequences of those decisions. That's why I said, because he took Lot, Lot took Sodom and Gomorrah, got kicked out. You know, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. He fled to the mountains with his daughters and his wife originally, who became a pillar of salt because she looked back. And they stayed up in the mountains, and he had no intention to ever leave those mountains again. Lot. And so his daughters, realizing that was going to happen, decided that we're not going to have any kids because he's not going to ever let us leave here either. Got him drunk, had sex with him, and had children. And then that led to two nations that were going to be disobedient in and be a challenge for Israel for all of their existence. So there was a consequence to his disobedience. When he took Hagar as his wife, you know, concubine wife and gave birth to Ishmael, Ishmael is the founder of many of the Arabian Middle Eastern nations who are still a thorn in the side of Israel. Sin has consequences and oftentimes long-term consequences. Now, God's attitude toward Abraham is that he was a righteous man and a very, very godly man because of God's mercy and forgiveness that he says, okay, you did these things. I'm still giving you what I promised you, but there's now going to be consequences for those, for those disobedience. And that's the thing that we look at it. God knows that we're going to make mistakes. He knows that we're not going to follow him completely. And he knows that there's going to be consequences because of our mistakes. But what does he focus on by his grace and his mercy is our obedience <laughs> and the blessings for the obedience. And that's good news for us. And here we have Abraham went out to a place that he did not know. He obeyed and didn't know where he was going. And this is a very interesting God told Abraham only one thing. Go, leave Ur of Chaldees, and go where I will show you. And he took a little delay in Haran, but he finally got up, and he wandered all over the, what was going to be called the Promised Land, all over Canaan to feed his sheep and to wander. And God told him, everywhere that your feet have touched belongs to you. And if you follow his, follow his life, he went all over the place in Israel. In the land that they're promised is everywhere that he's gone. You know, from Philistia to Edom to all those different places, everywhere he walked, everywhere he fed his sheep, 
belongs to Israel. Contrary to all the world's viewpoint nowadays. <laughs> then it says, verse 9, by faith he, we're still talking about Abram, sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange dwelling, a country dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob and the heirs with him of the same promise. So he says, all through this promised land, he dwelled in tents. And as his in cattle, They'd move to the next place, then, and he just kept constantly moving from place to place. And when Abraham died, God had told him, you're going to own everywhere that your footsteps led, and he owned one little piece of ground with a hill on it and a cave in it. And that's all he owned at the, at the time of his death. And he only had one kid. You know, by the time he died, he, 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 had, he, he had a grandson, now, it's kind of funny because you, when you read Genesis, it's so strange because it takes Abraham, takes him all the way to the end of his life when he dies and he's buried, and then it takes Isaac and moves from Isaac to, all the way to the end when Isaac dies and is buried, and then it takes Jacob's story and takes Jacob's story up until Joseph becomes a key, key feature on it. But there's a huge overlap on all their, all their stories. And because you have Isaac getting all set for the death of his father... You know, all prepared for his death of his father, and he doesn't die before, before uh, Jacob is born. And Abraham's still alive when, when Jacob is born. Abraham's still alive when Joseph is born. <laughs> and yet when you read the Genesis, it's like until you start comparing the ages of everybody, you don't realize that they're all overlapped because of the way, that, the way they tell the story. So you have this whole process of these individuals are going to live a long time but not seeming to be so long and then we have the whole thing that Eber is overshadowing all of them and in case you don't know but Shem is going to overshadow that period of time Shem and Eber are all alive during this during this time that Abraham is being being alive back to our patriarchs Shem is still alive during this period during Abraham's life we have a lot of these guys old and we don't even recognize because they're just kind of mentioned and then thrown out, you know, and never, never thought about. But these guys have a long life lifespan because I think it's been very important to see these things because I never, really, I never even noticed it. I'm going, okay, this person's age is this long, this person. Then I put them out on a, on a timeline. I'm going, oh, there's a lot of overlap here. These guys, these guys all knew, could have known each other. Now, I don't know how well they knew each other, but they could have very well known each other. Uh, Noah, you know, lives to be long enough to have met most of, the, most of these guys, too, as far as Abraham and Sarah and everything. He's alive in that same period of time uh, because he lives 400 years after that. So there's a lot going on here that, that people, until you see, until you see the, the grid, don't understand. These all, many of these guys are contemporaries to each other. Now, it doesn't mean they all knew each other, but, you know, Abraham, when he's living, he knows he, he's, he's in the region there. Eber is big. Where was Noah during this time? Where was Shem during this time? They were alive when Noah was born. Interesting, Noah, did he know Shem? Could he have gone firsthand experience with these guys? Uh, there's nothing in the scriptures telling us he did, but they lived long enough, and that was in the area that they were 
somewhere in that general area would have been where they had been living. Now, of course, Noah at that point is pretty old. <laughs> uh, but Shem does live to be further in, so who knows, who knows what it is. And would they be thinking, you know, uh, we're 400 years, you know, three, 400 years in the flood. People are looking at Noah saying, uh, well, yeah, you talk about this flood, but where's the proof of the flood? You know, how, how short is our memory spans? You know, even for us in our day, how many people really remember the history of America? You know, 250 years ago, and, and people are rewriting the history and, and forgetting and very important pieces of information. In this case, you would have been able to talk to the people who lived it, but still, they're old. And they're going, ah, oh, these guys are getting forgetful. Look, you know, they're fancy, you know, they're making their, the story sound bigger and more important than it is. So there was all of this going on and, and Satan moving against it and people starting to be disobedient and, and not wanting to follow God in all of the process that comes down into this. So we have all of this going on and it says that he dwells in this realm. And I love verse 10, for he looked for a city which had foundations whose builder and maker is God. Abraham's vision was not on this world. He was looking for the place that God had in store for him. We as Christians, we should be looking for a home that's not here. Our home is heaven. And if we're not looking at heaven as our home, then we get stuck in this world and the craziness of this world. And you know, I was listening to one of the people talking to on the radio earlier today, and they were talking about, you know, people will say, I want to go to heaven, but not right away. And he goes, how wrong is that? I want to go to heaven as soon as God's ready to have me go to heaven. I, if he wants me to go tonight, I'm more than happy to go to heaven. Now, that's exactly what he was saying, especially in America. I'm not in a hurry to go to heaven because I'm having so much fun. I've got my cars, I've got my nice house, I've got the food on my table. So for Americans, we tend to not really be in a hurry to see heaven because we think we're in heaven already for some reason, you know, because we've got all the stuff. And he's going, if you go to the third world where they have nothing, heaven to them is, let me get there, you know, can I go there today? <laughs> all right. Uh, and so the question for us is, are we looking at a city with, whose founder is God, or are we looking at this world? And we can't get ourselves tied into this world and stay focused on God at the same time. And we're all guilty of it in America, especially of uh, how nice things are. And we do have this process, you know, well, you know, how can these things happen in America? Well, America wasn't heaven. <laughs> Never has been. But we did start on the right foundation, so it was better here than most places in the world. And we're quick, quickly losing that status as we're getting further and further away from God. But Abraham said the story of him is not looking at this world as his home. He goes, God has made a promise. I'm going to go forward into this promise and walk with God. Then verse 11 says, Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed, and she was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful, who had promised. 
Therefore sprang there even one, and him as good as dead, and so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the sea shore innumerable. Story of Sarah. What, what did Sarah say when she first, when the angel told Abraham, "You and Sarah are going to have a baby." It said that Sarah laughed. <laughs> she was in the tent and she heard that and she started laughing. Not probably not a belly laugh, but uh huh, right, sure. Why? Because when you read Genesis, it said that she was past the age of having a child. In other words, she had already gone in past menopause into there. She was not having her periods and she's going, yeah, right now. I am not going to have a baby. And yet it says that she believed. (laughs) Because she did eventually believe. And again, it's one of those pictures of love because how many times do we hear from God and our first instinct to, is to say, yeah, right, God, like that's going to happen. You know, I'm going to start a ministry or I'm going to do this or you're going to do this or I'm going to see this from my kids or whatever it might be that God has told you. Many times our first thought is, uh-huh, yeah, right. And that was Sarah's first thought. <laughs> Not going to happen. <laughs> God, you, you know, they, I don't know who this person out here talking is, but uh, with my husband, they, they know that we're supposed to have a kid, but they don't know what they're talking about because I can't have kids anymore. But it is so important for us to understand miracles still happen. God still works if we're looking for him to do so. Now, if I'm not praying for these things to happen, then I'm not going to see any miracles. Now, just because I pray doesn't mean that I'm going to see a miracle. I've prayed for lots of people to be healed, and less than 1% or 2% of them have been healed. In America, we see less of these things because we tend to rely on doctors and science more than anywhere else. In the third world, we see a lot of these type of prayers going on because in many cases, they don't have doctors nearby. And so people are praying for these things to happen and expecting God to do something more than we do in America. Uh, So in America, we have the great advantage of religious freedom, Bibles everywhere, churches everywhere, you know, great giving to God. But the flip side of it is we're so dependent also on the world, which takes us back to Abraham looking for a city with the foundation in God rather than this world. And it is really hard because we get infected so easily with the world's way of doing things. And it really is, you know, we think, you know, we get sick and instead of thinking about praying for our sickness, what's the first thing we think of? Got to get to the doctor, got to get to the urgent care. And I'm not belittling it. I mean, I thank God that we have a medical system in America that allows this to happen. But should it be our first thought should prayer be part of our process first and then go see doctors? Because doctors are used by God, and I'm not going to say they're not. But for us in America, we think about the doctors first. We think about the, the aspirin and the penicillin and the antibiotics and everything first rather than prayer. And I think we probably should kind of twist that around a little bit and say we're going to go to prayer, and if God chooses to use the world's way of doing it, then fine, but if he chooses to do a miracle, 
even better. But we need to be careful about this. Uh, so back to Sarah. <laughs> Sarah, who is past menopause, <laughs> ends up receiving this baby because she did judge him faithful. You know, uh, after she lied, you know, why did your wife laugh? And she goes, I didn't laugh. But eventually she came to the conclusion that if God says something, then I'm going to believe it. You know, and again, what I'm loving in all these stories, except for Noah, is people's obedience, even when it was slow to be obedient, God still says they were obedient. There was still obedience, and God's blessing and his mercy and his grace says, we're just going to skip over the parts where they were disobedient, and we're going to jump right to saying, by faith they were obedient. And I love that, which means to me, even though there's going to be consequences, no matter how many mistakes I make in my walk with God, as long as I keep following him, his testimony of me will be, he was faithful. His testimony of you will be that you were faithful. No matter what mistakes you made getting there, he's going to say, you were faithful. Now, that doesn't rule out the consequences for the disobedient times. <laughs> All right? But it does the final testimony by God, faithful. And I love that. Each one of these individuals so far, we're seeing this idea that they were faithful in the long run. And then it comes down to uh, verse 12 says, Therefore sprang out even of one, and him as good as dead, because remember that Abram was also a hundred years old when this happened. And he had not been able to have children with Sarah for the decades that they'd been trying. Now he did be able to conceive the one time with uh, Hagar, and we don't know if that was the only time he slept with her, but he had one child up to this point in time, and he's a hundred years old, and God says, okay, now you're going to get to have your child with Sarah. She can't, by earthly standards, have a child. Abraham, you're a little old. You're not supposed to have children either, but now the two of you are going to have a child. Uh, now, Abraham also had more children after that. If you don't remember, when Sarah dies, he marries Keturah and ends up giving twelve kids. So in all, he gives birth to 14 kids, most of them after he was 100, 13 of them after he was 100. All right. Uh, so when God restored it to Abraham as well, he was restored completely. All right. Um, and ended up having lots of children, but he treated the other ones as not part of his family. And God always said that Abraham had one child that mattered. The rest of them were not the children of promise. And the children of Keturah were never included in his inheritance. He gave them their gifts and sent them away. And they also made up the enemies of Israel. <laughs> so this, all these people that say Abraham has given birth to outside of Isaac are troublemakers for Israel because they all inherited the promise of becoming nations. And not the nation that God wanted, but they all became nations. Ishmael ends up with 12 different children that creates tribes to, against Israel. And then he has 12 other children that end up. So there's 24 families that are directly related to Abraham 
that caused trouble to Israel. Plus two from, I, from, from Lot that caused trouble for So there's uh, 26 different nations that are causing trouble for Israel because of the disobedient times that they've had. You know, that's a lot of consequence for the disobedience. And that's long-term consequences that they have. So there's, you know, we, we really want to be able to God says they were obedient, but for all those disobedience, there was long-term. Now, in the book of faith, they're not trying, in the chapter of faith, they're not, not going over the disobediences. They're just going into all the good side that comes from that obedience. Uh, and then it says that all, um, and out of this spring, and even if it's in the good, so many as the stars, multitude and as the sand of the seas show innumerable. That was the promise to Abraham. Your descendants will number the stars of the heaven and the sand of the sea. Now that's a lot of kids. Uh, because as we've been trying to count the stars, every time we think we know the number of stars, we shine like the Hubble, light, Hubble telescope in one area and it gets so many stars it fills the whole picture with, a, with light. We have no clue as to how many stars there are out there. And every time we think we know, we add more stars because there's more stars to be found. All right, so that's one thing. And then he says, and the sand. Well, I have never tried to count the sand on the, on the beach. Now, the scientists apparently have. They've taken samples and, you know, of certain size and then multiplied it by the, you know, there's this much, this much sand on this, this uh, cubic foot or cubic inch, and then we multiply that by all the sands. <laughs> Sands out there, and I, you know, they come up with some crazy number, but it's a lot of kids. <laughs> it's a lot of kids that are out there. Uh, basically, he was said, Abraham, kids, nobody's going to be able to count your kids. And the Israelites have been having kids ever since. And then you add spiritual children, possibly, with the Christians that have come through through Jesus Christ being adopted into the family of God. And you get an innumerable number of kids involved with this, with this sound, just as God promised. And even during the time of the Hebrews, they were saying, yeah, there's lots of us Jews. <laughs> we're all over the place. There's lots of us. And so we have this process going on. And then it says in verse 13, all these died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed them as that they were strangers and pilgrims on this world. They had not seen the answers. Each of these examples that he talked about never really saw the fulfillment that God had promised. A perfect world that was going to be coming back into existence. The answer, Abraham did not see his children. He lived long enough to see Jacob or know of Jacob and his, you know, and all of a sudden he's got great-grandchildren and Jacob's having kids finally. And he's going, oh, finally starting to <laughs> see the fulfillment of this statement. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. You've probably heard of him. Uh, and we don't know. I'm, I'm just perspective, you know, uh, because you're right, he's, he's back up in Haran, and Abraham is down in the promised land, 
But there was communication back and forth between these families, I'm sure. I mean, it wasn't total. Of course, Jacob was hiding, so they might not have heard about the kids. All he knows is, okay, they, my, I have two grandsons. Where's the rest of my kids? So it is possible he'd never heard about Jacob uh, and his kids. Or he had. You know, I don't, you know, I, I know the communication was better even back then than we, we think it is. It wasn't as good as our day, but... You know, uh, it's always been said that news travels fast, and oftentimes the news would travel faster to them than the newspapers or the or the uh, couriers got there. Somebody else had already got the news to these people long before that, or at least rumors. Uh, so we don't know. But Abraham dies knowing only that he has a child, two grandchildren, maybe knows of some of the great grandchildren, but he's still not still not seeing a multitude. And, you know, and his promise was that you are going to be the father of nations. I'm absolutely convinced that he was sure that he was, by the time he's getting to be 100, he was expecting to have dozens of children all over the place, and those kids were going to have kids, and he was going to go, I am well on my way to being a nation. And he dies definitely knowing about his son and his two grandsons, may or may not know about Jacob's kids and, and, and Esau's kids and going, you know, how many times have we might have gone to God? Okay, God, it took you a long time to get me this kid. Now, where's the, you know, my, there's no grandchildren yet. Where are the grandchildren? You know, we're supposed to be, I'm supposed to be a nation by now. And, you know, I can almost picture that he had some complaints going on about all of this. Even when Jacob goes to Egypt. There's only 137 of them, I think it was, uh, 100, and, 100 and something strong in this nation for, for Abraham. And then just three generations later, they leave Egypt with over 300, or three, over 3 million individuals, most likely. All right. We know there's 166,000 fighting men most of the fighting men probably were married, so that brings us up to 1.2, and then most of them probably had children, which pushes us well over 3 million people. And that's just the fighting men. That doesn't count the old ones, the old ones that had families already. So conservatively, somewhere around 300, uh, 3 million people leave Egypt when they come down with just slightly over 100, 100, can't remember exactly what it was, but it's just slightly over 100 when they come into Egypt. Finally, he, if Abraham was alive, he'd get to say, that's my family, that's my nation coming out. Finally, three, three million, I can call that almost the number of stars, at least by what they thought of back then as the number of the stars. Wouldn't have counted as the sands of the beach, but <laughs> the sands, but he's going, I got lots of kids. But he, doesn't, he never sees that answer. He is walking purely by faith. God, you have promised me a great nation. It's going to happen. Now, he had his periods of doubt. Now, he had his periods of doubt where he started trying to do things on his own. But he still held on. God, you made a promise. We will always have the same problem where we will see doubtful times. When God has told us something and, and he 
and he by our standards is delaying. You know, and this is the problem that we have. God works on his time, not our time. When when I walked by faith and I needed needed funds for something and I didn't have a job at the time, I'd go, God, uh, you know, this bill's coming up. And God goes, I, you know, basically I could hear him say, yeah, I know. Uh, God, this due next week. God never gave me the money I needed a week ahead of time. Rarely gave it to me long enough to get it into the bank and get the check processed before, before I had to write the check on the check. Uh, usually it came that day or the day before, and that's God's timing. And it is so easy for us, because we walk by sight, to say, God, where are you? What are you doing? And I'm sure Abraham had many of those times when, when he's going, God, I don't understand this. And we know that he did when you read the, read the book. You know, that's why he tried to, they, they tried to have the child you know, through Hagar. And even before that, he's going, you know, hey, I don't even have any kids. You know, my heir is, the, is my servant. Uh, and God says, no, you're going to have a child with Sarah. Uh, you know, and kept telling her, with Sarah. And then he slept with Hagar so that he could have a child that's, that Sarah would be, quote unquote, the, the, mother of, the, the, the mother of. But And God says, no, I didn't count him. You're going to have a child by Sarah. And he kept reiterating to him the promise. And it's so easy for us to get ahead of God. To say, God, I'm not fully trusting in you. Normally, it's because we look at it and say there is no earthly way that it can happen. And God says, yeah, that's correct. It's going to take a supernatural, spiritual answer to your problem. And we see this over and over in these stories that God says it is a supernatural answer. It is me. And I'm going to make sure that there's no way you think that it was you. And God does that to us a lot. I want you to know that it is not you who did this. It is me who did this and that means he usually waits until we know that we cannot do it in our own strength and then he goes okay you can't do it all right now let me show you that i can do it and then he does whatever it takes to make sure that it happens and he says all of these died seeing from afar but being so persuaded of them embraced them and confess that they were strangers and pilgrims in this earth. God, there's no way I can happen. I'm going to go forward. And it says, For they that say such things clearly uh, declare plainly that they seek a country. Is our confession that we seek what God wants. The more we're willing to accept what God wants, probably the earlier he can do things for us because he knows that we're looking to him. If Abraham had just stayed seeking God, much of Israel's troubles would not exist to this, to, to this day. Now Satan would have had other troubles for them, obviously. They're God's people, but there was consequences for it because he wasn't seeking always. And then, you know, it says, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. What happened when Israel left Egypt? Every time they got into a hard part, they're going, we want to go back. <laughs> you know, uh, when Pharaoh and his uh, army were riding on to them on the wrong side of, 
of the of the uh, Red Sea, they're going, oh, did you bring us out here because there wasn't enough graves in Egypt to bury us? You, you brought us out here to die. And he says, wait and see. And they cross the, cross the river and then across uh, the river, across the, <laughs> the Red Sea. Then they complain they don't have water and they want to go back. Then they complain that they're hungry. They want the leeks and onions of, and garlic of Egypt and not, you know, not the manna that they were being fed. Then they complained about having just manna and wanted you know, other things and quail. And, and each time that they complained, God brought judgment against them. And poor Moses had to go before God because they were ready to stone him every time they complained. Because they looked at it and says, we don't know about this God, but Moses, it's all your fault that we're out here. Uh, you know, because they didn't ever trust God. Their faith was in the man of God, not in God. And this is something we have to be very careful of, that we don't put faith in humans. We put our faith in God. It doesn't mean we can't, you know, follow a leader, be taught by a teacher, whatever. But our faith is not to be in that leader. Our faith is to be in God. Because when we watch people have a faith in a leader, it's not personal. We must always get to the place where we trade the faith of our teacher, the faith of our parents, for our own personal faith. And this is true of kids when they grow up. Many kids do not grow up and make faith personal. They have the faith of their parents, and if they don't make it personal and their faith, they'll fall away from it because it's not theirs. And there's always that challenge. They must make it a personal faith. My faith. It's not my dad's faith, not my mom's faith, not my pastor's faith, not my grandma's faith or whatever. It is my faith. And that is where we grow into that point. And then that last one, but they desired a better country that is, in, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city. And this is a very interesting statement. God is not need to be ashamed to be called our God. uh, Or their God, (laughs) our God. Why? Because we have faith that what he says is true. Now, faith is going to be challenged all the time. But it is so important and this is kind of interesting, that God does not need to be ashamed of us. Which means if you're not his follower and you're not walking by faith, God has, is ashamed of those individuals. He paid the price for the world to be able to go to heaven. He loves the world so much that he wants everybody to go to heaven. I have a picture of God at the white throne judgment almost in tears as he's judging these people and sending them to hell. I love you so much, I died for you, and you've rejected this. I had this opportunity not to be ashamed of you. Now I'm ashamed of the reaction that you've got and the direction that, you're, that you've moved in. And be able to say to them, you're guilty, you're being condemned forever. When I paid that price, I can't even imagine what that would be like. You know, you know, the idea that he paid such a heavy price for their sin to
to be rejected as they're standing before him to receive what they've asked for, judgment. And even then, he loves them. God is not up there in heaven as he's sending people to hell, clapping his hands and all excited that, all right, you're another one going to hell, another one going to hell. It's breaking his heart that they have rejected him. They've rejected the gift. And he's not up there joyfully sending people to hell. I don't even believe that he's going to joyfully send Satan to hell, even though Satan totally deserves it. Satan it was his creation as well. Satan was the chief archangel before he fell. There is no joy in having to condemn your creation. This is the idea of even a parent who has a totally, totally rebellious child. Generally, if they have any love in their heart, any true love in their heart, loves that child. Even though they may know that they deserve the punishment and deserve the hard life they have, they still love that child and will be heartbroken by what has happened to that child. That is God's attitude toward the children of this world that reject him. He is not getting up there, jumping up and down, excited about judging these, judging these individuals. And so we want to keep this in mind. This is how we need to deal with one another in the lost world. God loves them. Even those people that we think there's no possible way that they could be loved, God loves them. They probably have a mother and father that love them. And if we're truly walking in God's love, we should be exhibiting love to them as well. And so this is all of what's coming in here, that God is not ashamed of those who come to him in faith. And it's kind of an interesting statement to be able to look at. And I had caught hold of that one, that God is not ashamed to be called their God. And so we want to keep this all in mind, and we're going to stop here. I knew this chapter was going to take us quite a while to get through, (laughs) mostly because I want to go over the stories of all the people that are out there so that we can remember those stories. Um, Lord, we ask you to bless this time. Help us to stay faithful to you in all that we do. Help us to know and remember you and to have faith in what you have told us and to walk in that faith and walk in the power of your love and your kindness. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23 we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10.9-8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? 
Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.